Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More. I am so excited to have my first repeat guest on this week. Shelby Riley is with us for another conversation. For those of you that might not recall, Shelby is a licensed marriage and family therapist who has tough conversations pretty much every single day. So Shelby, welcome to the show again. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. So today we're having a very specific conversation. We are talking about alcohol. In so many ways, it impacts pretty much everybody. And I think I, I am very motivated by this topic personally for two reasons. One, you know, I grew up in a family where alcoholism was prevalent and made for a very difficult upbringing. I will leave it at that. And yet, all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, I found myself on this slippery slope of very consistent alcohol use. And now in hindsight, having made some pretty dramatic changes in my personal life, I'm like, duh, like, how did I not see that coming? But obviously, you're going to have lots of excellent advice about that. So for me, for those who may not have listened to the alcohol episode, it was the only solo episode I published on this podcast. Just for a very brief recap, I was never a drinker, you know, all through high school, college. It really wasn't. I was a goody two shoes, didn't like it, didn't like how it made my brain feel, knew I needed to perform always. So I didn't drink until, you know, I got married and had some money and we'd go out and like have cocktails here or there. But I didn't drink consistently until COVID happened. And it just started to be one of those very habitual things where I had a cocktail I loved. I loved having it out, but then we couldn't go out. So I loved having it at home. But that, you know, enjoyment of the the craft of the cocktail, you know, now I understand turned into enjoyment of how that cocktail made me feel and how coming home from a day of like tremendous, constant berating stress, looking forward to the craft, but then feeling how that cocktail just kind of like let the air out made it something I very much looked forward to. And then you know what happened, Shelby. So then one cocktail doesn't quite have the same effect as it used to. So then it's two cocktails. And then it's not just, you know, at the end of a long week, it becomes at the end of a long day and so on. And so it took, you know, a very difficult self-conversation for me to realize that I was on, like I said, a slippery slope. And I basically just stopped drinking for two months. And then now I drink very socially, occasionally on the weekends. So that's my personal journey, which, you know, there's no nice way to say this sucked. It was terrible. <laughs> it was so hard. <laughs> there are that it wasn't just a self-conversation that one of your kids actually kind of asked you a little bit about your alcohol use and maybe yes. kind of held up a mirror in a way that didn't feel so good. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah, my 15-year-old, 
Because, you know, our kids notice everything, right? Like, you don't even think, like, you know, I would love for me to walk into the house and have my kids go, oh, mom, you got your hair cut. That looks amazing. <laughs> never happens. Literally never happens. Like, nope. I could come in with a shaved head. They would not notice. But somehow, this little tiny thing that was hovering in the background was so noticeable to her. And for those of you who didn't hear this story, it was, you know, sometime, I don't remember when, but I was... I set my drink down and I was, you know, walking around like, oh, like, where did I put my drink? And she was sitting there and, you know, without missing a beat, she's like, hmm, it's not in your right hand. That's where it usually is. And I was just like, oh, ouch. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was savage and she's 15. And, you know, for her to not just notice that, but for her to clearly express disdain at that behavior just made me feel, well, number one, angry, irritable, defensive, and then just shitty. Just, then just like, oh my God, who am I? What am I modeling for my kids? And you know, she's my youngest. And then I have two older ones, one who is 23 now and one who's about to turn 21. So, you know, alcohol is very much a part of their world, socially and excessively a lot of times. And I was like, I don't need to be a encouraging force in that. They have enough battles to fight in that realm without having me at home be like, oh, yeah, it's fine. But I never had a conversation with a healthcare professional beside myself. I don't know why. I mean, because I'm a doctor and doctors are terrible patients because I don't have a doctor because I didn't think I needed a doctor. I mean, there's 10 trillion bad reasons why I didn't have a doctor with a professional, but I probably should have a conversation with a professional. So let's talk about your experience with such situations. So obviously your clients probably don't come to you and say, Hey, I had a, you know, aha moment and I decided to stop drinking. Now, what do I do? Like, where do your clients come to you in that journey? So First, I just want to say, like, I hope you know that you're in really good company with the whole COVID over drinking situation. So many people started drinking more and more because we really lost access to a lot of the other things that we did that helped us sort of chill out and calm down and like relieve our stress. And so and yeah, you couldn't go out. It was no longer special to go out to a restaurant and have your cocktail. And so interestingly enough, I actually did have quite a few clients who were self-aware enough. And I can think of a handful of them over the years. I can think of a woman years and years and years ago who came in and said, you know, instead of talking about, you know, parenting and kind of, you know, how I'm better relating to my children, what I'd really like to talk about is the fact that my two glasses of wine has turned into three. Mm. And I don't know how wow. or why or when that happened, but I've noticed it and I don't think it's a good thing. And so I was just like, oh, you know, like those are the <laughs> best conversations to have because somebody is open and they are ready. Right. But most often that is not how it comes into the room. Often it's a family member. Like, so if we're doing couples therapy, it's the partner, you know, of somebody kind of going, yeah. And by the way, I really can't stand it that, you know, they're falling asleep at, you know, 9 PM on the couch. We're supposed mm -hmm. to be having our like nice time and they are just snoring away because they had too much to drink. Or, you know, I really can't stand it that my partner, you know, needs to come in and have, you know, four drinks before they can engage with me. Mm -hmm. And so that defensiveness that you talked about, that anger that you talked about, a lot of excuses, 
really is the very first thing that we kind of have to move through. And so, again, the other thing I'll just note is that in our community, there really, I've lived a couple different places. I was an army brat growing up, and so I'm just really used to moving. So as an adult, I've lived in the D.C. area. I've lived in Southern California. I've lived here. And really, when we moved here, I was just amazed at the level of drinking that goes on socially, like on a Thursday night. Like, <laughs> and, and I hear these stories time and time again. And so I know that my neighborhood at the time was not that special, you know, where it's like people are like, oh, bring the kids. Everybody come up. It's, it's amazing. This like social connectiveness that there is. But then, you know, you'd have 15 adults and 20 children running around and so much drinking. And like, then you start paying attention. You're like, oh my gosh, I think people are having like eight to 10 beers <laughs> on a Thursday night, just as like a normal hangout kind of thing. Well, and for people who don't know, here is Southeastern Pennsylvania, suburbs of Philadelphia. Chester um, County, PA. No, yeah. Chester uh-huh. County, PA, right. And I... And- we are not like, I love that you said that because we're not like, you know, metropolis, cool people like, you know, going to the four seasons after work for, you know, a $25 cocktail. We're like moms who are just like frazzled <laughs> trying to keep it together. That is such a great point. So, yeah, so we are, this is great for me personally because I live where you live. So, you know, the culture of our community very yeah. much is accepting or encouraging of alcohol. Yeah. And so it makes it so easy for people to think that it's yeah. really not problematic, you know, because everybody's doing it. And most everybody is getting up the next day and going to work and functioning fairly well and pretty high achieving. And so it sometimes is really hard to see what the problem is if everybody's doing it and you're still, you know, managing to function fairly well. Right. Because, you know, like, I think, like, for me, like, I know what alcoholism looked like growing up, like, I'm very, I'll never forget it. And that's not what I looked like, you know, even to the external observer, right? So, like, I never got blackout drunk, you know, I was not the person falling asleep, because I had too much to drink, I would fall asleep like easier maybe, but not earlier. And then I would sleep terribly and that's a whole other thing. But I feel like, and maybe this is not how it was observed from the outside, but I feel like my drinking was not emblematic of alcoholism or what excessive drinking would look like. You know, like I I hear these stories about people usually younger than I who when they like they may only drink one or two nights a week but when they do they binge so much that they have zero recollection of like how they got home and what happened and they're actually they're putting themselves in dangerous situations and things like that like that was not me so but i still had you know problematic drinking so can we talk about those two different things like have you had experiences with the people who are like dude you pass out every time you drink like this is a serious problem Have you had those conversations? Yeah. And I would say problem drinking and like most things in life, you know, it falls on a spectrum where you you have, we've certainly had clients where it's like they are hiding the empty bottles in the bottom of the trash. You know, they're hiding them in the trunk of their car. They're mixing vodka, you know, with Gatorade, you know, so that it's like well hidden that it, I mean, it feels like sort of what those after school specials that you watched as a child, you know, where it's like, oh, that is what problem drinking looks like. This is a problem. 
But then you again that that whole sort of thing to where looking and going, well, maybe somebody is drinking ten beers four nights a week. Again, the the interesting thing about where we live in this suburb of Philadelphia. I mean, people here love their sports. It is like people's <laughs> game. And I hate their sports at the same time. <laughs> and, so, and with sports comes drinking. Like everybody's like, oh my gosh, like we can't have everybody over for a football game, like to watch the Eagles play and not have all of this beer. And so it just really becomes a part of their whole weekly routine. And then you do have sort of on that other end of the spectrum, the people who are saying, you know, yeah, I've noticed my two glasses of wine have turned into three. Or, you know, I'd really like to just be able to drink one cocktail twice a week, but I find myself sort of being pulled towards it quite a bit. And I don't really have the capacity to say no to it. And I don't know what that's about. And that feels bad. And so how I often frame it is, what is your relationship to alcohol? Because if you look at somebody and you're like, you are an alcoholic, like there, there is a time and a place for that. I mean, there really mm -hmm. is, but like, sure, it really depends on how many, and we'll call them interventions, but I don't mean interventions by like uh -huh. the true, you know, did you see John Mulaney's stand up? Yes, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> Best intervention, right? It's like the yes. greatest intervention And the um, people who didn't care enough about him to be there, they were there by Zoom. <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I loved oh, it. Funny. But, you know, the interventions are, you know, your partner looking at you and going, I don't like how much you drink, you know, or your mom commenting and going, I don't like this. Like maybe you get pulled over for a DUI, you know, maybe you come in, you know, yeah, you just made a face for, for listeners who can't see your face, but it's like, yeah, sometimes even that doesn't feel like a really big deal to people wow. because, you know, it happens. Or like, you know, you can have two drinks at a restaurant and get pulled over and, and blow enough for a DUI. And so people can kind of rationalize to themselves. And I will be honest and tell you that I do know a couple of people who do not have drinking problems. I mean, who really don't have a bad relationship to alcohol, who have gotten got DUIs. DUIs yeah, and yeah. So it's like that weird reality of what do they need to take a look at? Mm -hmm. And so often in the beginning, I don't label it as alcoholism or addiction. I really talk about, let's look at your relationship to alcohol and what function does it serve right now? That's usually the first question I ask because I feel mm -hmm. like I'm somebody who does not like to be told what I'm thinking and feeling. It makes me very upset, even if mm -hmm. the person is right. I just, I think pe most people like to come to these conclusions themselves. And so really coming at it, with questions where it's like, okay, like, tell me about your drinking. How much are you drinking? Mm -hmm. And then when they, and I really have, have had people say, oh, you know, I probably have about 12 drinks a night. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. And like, my job is to keep a pretty straight face, you know, and like to not, like show great shock, but like to go, oh, okay. And then how many times a week is that? And they're like, eh, you know, five to seven. And you're like, hmm. Okay. Wow. You know, because these are big numbers, but to them, they're not. And my very first question is often, because if I, if I show a really big reaction automatically, they're like, she's judging me. She thinks I'm a jerk. You know, it's like, right. so I try, to, try to stay as calm as possible. And then I go, what's it like to hear yourself say that? Because if you just let them kind of sit with that, like hmm. people have a tendency to like to either, wow, that's way too much. You have a drinking problem or like, <laughs> Oh, I'm uncomfortable. Let's laugh it off. Ha 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 ha. You're like, eh, yeah, well, you know. 
And so if you just can kind of stay centered and contained in yourself and ask the person, what's it like to hear yourself say that? Often they'll either be like, I don't know. I don't think it's a big deal. Everybody in my neighborhood drinks like this. And then you go, oh, okay. So it feels really normal to you. Mm -hmm. So then you're like really trying to get into their world and to go, what function does it serve? And then if they can really start looking, because often they're just like, oh, stress relief. Oh, just, you know, like socializing. This is what we do. And I'm like, okay, but if your doctor told you that, you know, your liver evaporated overnight and you really cannot process alcohol anymore, what would you do instead? Would you mm-hmm. still go, you know, really just kind of exploring what truly is the function of alcohol in those situations, in their lives, in stress reduction, in anxiety reduction, in social anxiety, you know, that, or even just fitting in. I know for myself, I have two grandparents who were both alcoholics. And so my parents did the the fabulous like 180 thing. And we just didn't have alcohol in our house growing up. I just wow. don't remember it ever. And so I just don't really drink a lot. And so I I love a good IPA. I love a good glass of wine, but I probably literally drink once a week. Mm. If that one drink once a week, I'm very, very boring. And it's not from like some self-righteous place. It is literally just like, eh? you know, I mean, it's like, it's like, that's your normal. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't really, potato chips are delicious. They're Mm -hmm. fine. But like, I don't really crave them that much. And so I don't eat them that much. I love chocolate every single night. I will eat chocolate. Chocolate (laughs) is my problem, you know, but it's like that thing of when it's not important to you, it's easier to kind of look and go, well, I don't drink at these parties a lot. Mm -hmm. And I did get ripped for it. Like when we first moved here and I would, I'd have one beer and then people would be like, let me get you another, let me get you another. You got to have another. And I'd be like, no, no, I'm good. Like there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of, yeah. I had never in high school experienced the kind of peer pressure that I experienced at adult parties in Chester County, Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know, in my family. Like, it was really wild to me. And luckily, like I just was always, I was born with the kind of personality where I'm just like, I don't care. So like when people pushed and pushed and pushed, I don't care. So I didn't say, okay, I will, I will, I will. But a lot of people really feel the need to make other people feel comfortable. They they do mm-hmm. feel the need to fit in and to make everybody okay. And so they will kind of keep drinking to keep up with everybody. So that's so interesting because, I mean, like you said, it's on a continuum, right? But 12 beers, five days a week, that's, you know, cirrhosis is going to happen. Yeah. You know, there's like me- serious medical consequences medical to that. But there's this like almost gray zone and I, it, it is called gray zone drinking where you know medically as a doctor i can't legitimately say to a patient your liver is going to evaporate if you keep this up but i also do need to say like this is not good yep. it's not good because of where it could go but honestly it's not good for where it is right now because mm-hmm. a lot of people like to think like i don't drink a lot and my only problem would be if I drank more, like if this right. became not enough and I had to drink more, like I was saying, when you develop that tolerance. But there's a whole host of issues that happen with that little bit, but consistently. And so, for example, well, I have two things. One is 
we have these new patient forms, you know, that people love like 17 pages of things and everybody thinks no doctor ever looks at them. Like, why am I wasting my time? Well, well, guess what? I look at them. I look at every single bit of them and I find them so, so helpful because there's a little bit of comfort in the anonymity of answering a question on a piece of paper or on the computer as opposed to like speaking it. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the things like I always go to, like, what do they do for work? And are they married? Do they have kids? Are they divorced? Like those social things, I think sometimes frame that first conversation. It's really Mm -hmm. important. But I always go to the alcohol question. When we were in training, we were taught like whatever they say they're drinking, like add a zero to it, right? So if they say they're drinking, you know, one drink a week, they're drinking 10. I don't know if it's that much anymore. I think people are much more honest nowadays. Yeah. I, I really do still kind of in my head think a little range, right? Where it's yeah, like, okay, yeah, yeah. that plus two or three, you know, like yes. I add a zero yes. to it, but like, yeah, that's it. Right. we all kind of underreport our, our, wow. our like problem behaviors a little bit. So exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So when I see that, when I see my drink, you know, two drinks nightly, you know, I almost feel like that patient is inviting me to ask them. They are inviting me to talk to them about it. And I do. And, you know, for me as a doctor, and this is where you, I'm sure you can help, it's a difficult conversation. So I'll say something like, oh, I see that you drink two glasses of wine and you said every night. And then I'll say, like, really every night? And they'll be like, yeah. And then yeah. the conversation takes a certain way or like, well, you know, not really every night, but I find myself like trying to be really careful. Like you said about what's my face, mm-hmm. what's my tone, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it from a place of judgment. So let's talk very specifically about that. So you're a healthcare provider and a patient has indicated to you that they drink, let's just call it more than they should. And I will say medically any more than one to two drinks once or twice a week is probably more than they should. And that's probably a whole different conversation about biologically, physiologically, why that's true. But so you get this idea that they're drinking more than they should. What's your first comeback question? Yeah, I really do think my first comeback question is, yeah, what is it like to hear yourself say that? You know, when they say, I drink this much. And then the follow-up questions are, I mean, really, like, tell me a little bit about why? Yeah. What, what function does it serve? It's so funny in training, like becoming a therapist, we were taught like never to ask the question, why mm. you can say, how come, which is the exact oh. same as why, but you can't mm. say why. I don't know why. Maybe it was just my training program. So <laughs> I rarely ask why, but yes, I mean, the, the root of it is why, what's the function? What function does drinking serve? Mm-hmm. And then being able to really gently explore, you know, tell me a little bit about the nights when you don't drink, you know, what are you doing instead? Tell me about the nights when you're drinking more than the other nights, what's going on there. Often it's like Friday, Saturday, you know, it's like, you know, we go out, we, we have a thing. And so it's really sort of trying to gently and clearly get a really good sense. And then I like to ask these sort of bizarre hypothetical, I I say all the time, like, so if that person fell off the face of the planet, you know, like who would you call instead? Like things, because just how do you intellectually, philosophically remove something mm-hmm. and then ask people to consider what their life might be like without it? And so kind of going, if alcohol was no longer available, 
And like, I mean, we just, we were back in prohibition times and there wasn't, you know, an underground market of, you know, bootlegging, whatever. What would you be doing instead? You know, how are you spending your time? How are you decompressing? What does that look like? Because ultimately what I want to get to is, and I frame things often as an experiment because I truly believe this is what we are constantly doing in our lives. We're experimenting. Like you did an experiment, Christine, right? Where you were like, what if I did dry January and you know, then extended it? How would that feel? What would that be like? And can we actually take this experiment seriously and have some really good guidelines and to say, I will never ask people straight off, like stop drinking, like take alcohol out completely, but I'll say, okay, so if you're drinking this amount, you know, what would it be like to reduce that by one or two drinks every night? And, you know, maybe make Wednesday a night where you have zero alcohol. And this is not for the rest of your life. This is not like as a punishment or something. It is an experiment for you to take notes and to see like what's going on with you, what's coming up. You know, what are those cravings? What are you hearing in your head about mm. like, yeah, but I deserve it, you know, or, oh, I need it. Or like, mm. what is that? So we can get clearer and clearer and clearer about your relationship to alcohol and what's going on there. And if it does have some sort of hold over you, is this addiction at some point we're going to figure out because addiction there really is something very different biochemically going on in your brain that we need to address versus habit or coping or self-medicating, right? Like that, that those are things that we actually do have some ability to regulate and to start putting other things into place, you know? And so can you, can you tell that from the response to the experiment question? Like when you offer that as a suggestion, uh, yeah. it, do you have people who are like, oh, hell no can't do it? Or do you find that most people are like, well, I'll give it a try. And you kind of like, know, like, they're not really going to try. Yeah. Every once in a while. And this is the whole, it's like, if their partner is the one bringing up or their parent, you know, like if they're like 22 or something or, you know, whatever, that if it's someone else bringing it up and I'm like, Hey, would you be willing as an experiment? If they say, hell no, like, absolutely not. Well, then a, we've got two things to look at. We've got your relationship to alcohol and what's going on there that you are unwilling to give that up mm-hmm. and B, your relationship to this other person. And why are you prioritizing alcohol over this over other person's them. safety, yeah. right? Like, right. and like safety being emotional safety. And then what we as therapists get to do too, is look at you know, oh, is there some like under-functioning, over-functioning dynamic in this relationship? Is there some power and control? And so the person asking them to stop drinking, does it fall into like sort of this interactional pattern that feels very controlling? And so the person drinking is going to say like, no, I'm not doing that. Not necessarily because it's about their addiction, but it might be because there's a pattern of this other person trying to control them. And it feels right. Like- Right. And there's all these little like pieces that we get to tease out and go, okay, we have to address all of these layers in order to get to like, and it's really hard. How do you tease out this person's relationship to alcohol in the context of this family system and all of the dynamics right. that play out there? Right. Oh, that's so interesting because, okay, so you happen to know my husband who is um, mm-hmm. just 
the easiest. He's so easy. Um, He's willing, really. Mm -hmm. he, I, I'm I'm going to keep him forever and ever. Honestly, I think that you should. But, I think that's a very good idea. <laughs> but you know, he never like pretty much. He, we have this relationship where he's like if it's important to you if you feel like you really want to give it a go you absolutely should like mm -hmm. there's almost never a time when he's like definitely do not do that unless it involves spending excessive amounts of money um, but you know but if it's something i want to do for myself i want to run a marathon i want to lose weight i want to try this skin cream or whatever like yeah. there are things he'll poke fun of but he's never like don't do that and you know as i was drinking consistently at home like he never said you're drinking too much. He never said like, really, you want me to make you another one? Like never. He just said nothing. And then when I said, I think I'm drinking too much, he was like, well, yeah, he's like, mm -hmm. I think so. So what about that? What about those dynamics where people are not looking to, to get the best of their partner? You know, they're mm -hmm. really trying to kind of like stay neutral they're trying to be sweden about it but in that sense it's not really helpful like i'm thinking back, like if he had said oh i don't think you should have another one i would have kicked him in the face like i don't right. think i would have taken that well at all do you think that the partners the loved ones like get that and that's why some people do the opposite of what you're talking about maybe and i think it's really hard like we partner up with people because we want somebody to do life with and yeah. so, and you want somebody, I mean, honestly, who's going to speak into your life. I do want somebody who's going to make me a better person. Oh, and so absolutely. I, I think it's really amazing and wonderful when you've cultivated the kind of relationship where you can sort of say those things to each other, but it's hard to do. And like issues of weight, issues of drinking, like these are those things where it is, it is a really, there's no good textbook answer for when do you look at somebody and say, Hey honey, I've noticed that you've put on a lot of weight. I'm worried about you. Oh you know, God. like I would kill him. I mean, like, <laughs> seriously. But like, it is strange to live with somebody and to watch them you know, change dramatically. So it's like, Hey honey, I've noticed that you've been drinking a lot. I'm really worried about you. Because ultimately, that behavior, the person that's doing it is the one responsible for it. And so what we do try to do in these situations is also say, we want the partner to have a voice. We want them to be able to lovingly, you know, say, I love you and I'm worried about you. Because let's say it's drinking or weight or whatever. It's not to go like, I don't find you attractive when you do this or blah, blah, blah. It's not that, right? It's things have shifted and you're not taking care of yourself the same right. way. And I love you and I want you to be good. Yeah. yeah. I'm worried about you. Yeah. And so we do actually encourage people to not become the police officer. You don't mm. want to be looking at your partner and going, mm -hmm. well, you've had two already. Like that's <laughs> enough. You know, it's my, my in-laws actually are, are in this situation where they are 89 and their bodies have changed, you know, and my mother-in-law doesn't have good balance anymore. And so they both like to drink. It's they have their scotch in their wine, but my mother-in-law actually just can't tolerate as much wine as she used to be able to because her balance is so off. She will fall. And at mm -hmm. 89, if you're falling, you're going to get hurt. And so yeah. he, and her memory isn't as great as it used to be. And so my father-in-law is a little bit 
in charge of her health and he has to kind of caretake her, which is really quite beautiful to watch because she was the caretaker. They had a very traditional relationship. And so it's neat to see that shift and change, but there was a, a period of time where he would like literally be like, no, you've had enough. And it was like, oh, oh, this doesn't feel good. You know, it's like gently moved into this thing where it's like he can now really lovingly and gently set those limits that need to be set for her safety, but to do it in a way that feels respectful. But for most people, we don't want that going on. We don't want Chris looking at you and being like, uh, Christine, that's enough. You've had enough, right? It's like that has to be your job. And so our work in talking to people is really helping them feel seen and heard and respected enough to take this on for themselves. And what's interesting is like you had said, like when your daughter kind of pointed out that it wasn't in your hand, there's this little tiny bit of shame. And it's a very interesting balance where most of the time shame is not really a very helpful emotion. It really just causes you to self-hate and then continue to do things that aren't good for you because why bother making good decisions? You're a loser anyway, you know? Right. see bit of shame at just the right moment, right? Sometimes has this amazing holistic effect where you're like, damn, I have to make some changes. And so that's another piece of like that partner does sometimes play a vital role in like pointing things out and poking in just the right way. But it's, I'm a math person because I (laughs) just so much of this relationship stuff is so like esoteric and hard to wrap your head around where I'm like 90% of this has to be the person who is drinking coming to these things and owning it and being accountable. And like 10% can be other people sort of speaking in and poking in certain ways that do help them to kind of feel enough discomfort that they know they need to make a change. Yeah. Oh my God. That is so perfect. Right. And I think that teeny seed of shame that day was definitely mm-hmm. the catalyst. I think it was something I probably had been thinking of for a long time, but that moment yeah. definitely did it. And, you know, there's this other interesting thing that happens. <laughs> I'm a very self-sufficient person, right? Like mm-hmm. I can do life by myself very well. I just don't want to, and I don't need to. I love my partnership with my husband, but when it comes to weird things. And alcohol is one of those things. Like we were just in wine country and at every opportunity, there was just so much wine and so many great cocktails. And I remember at one place saying to him, Ooh, should I have another glass of wine? And, Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't ask his permission really for anything. And he was like, well, do you really want one? I'm like, I don't really want one. I just liked it. And he was like, then don't, you know? And I was like, all right, yeah, then I won't. And I, I think that that sort of validation in some of these decisions is so helpful, not just in the decision to not drink, you know, but in the decision to go ahead and have another one, if you want to like getting almost permission. So don't you think that that comes down to not just the relationship with alcohol, but the relationship with the person, you know, if the relationship is one where you truly value what they think, say, feel, your response is going to be one way. But if the relationship is one, like you said, of like a power struggle or like it's adversarial from start to finish, that's going to bleed into the relationship with the alcohol for that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the tough thing too, is that the alcohol bleeds into the relationship, you know, if let's say we'll call it a marriage, you know, it's like for, 
it's what makes it really hard. It's like, yeah, the relationship that you have with your partner is going to influence the way you manage your alcohol use, because maybe you're a little more open or you feel a little safer if it's a healthier relationship. If you don't, maybe you're going to purposefully sort of like do what you want to do a little bit more than you'd even do it just to show that person. But the thing that we see all the time is that the alcohol bleeds into the marriage. And Mm. so what I will often try to help people understand is that this is an individual problem that you have that you need to be accountable for. And it's impacting a host of other people. And that sometimes it feels like the people in the house that aren't in a relationship with you anymore, they're in a relationship Mm -hmm. with you using alcohol, they're in a relationship with alcohol in some way, it's weird. And I will often think of it like, if you came home and you just put a nice thin blanket over yourself, And then you're like, hi, everyone, how's it going? And they're all like, oh, hi, hi, nice to see you. I can't quite see you because there's a little blanket over you, but hi. And then you're like, okay, let's have dinner. And then you have another blanket over yourself. And the person's like, oh, I'd really like a hug. Like, oh, I really wanted to have a talk, but like, hmm, like, I can't really see you. I can't really engage with you. There's this like buffer thing going on between us. And then the more blankets you put over yourself, the harder and harder and harder it would be for that person to actually be with you because they have to get through so many layers. And that's sort of how alcohol functions in some ways that like, it feels just like you're kind of loose and fine. And a lot of people will be like, no, I'm better company if I've had a drink or two. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But there's still a buffer there that they're really what people will ultimately get down to the crux of is I miss you. And they're like, I'm right here. And it's like, Uh but not really, because the alcohol creates such a buffer and such a a distance and a disengagement that even if somebody is like a big talker while they're drunk, you know, or like whatever, and they're talking to them, they're like, no, 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 I'm better. I'm better like this. It's like, yeah, but it's, it's you in your own little world that's alcohol fueled. And the other person you're, you're not actually authentically present with these other people. And that to me is like when you said like, oh, kids notice these little things. I'm like, right, because they don't care about your hair. It doesn't change anything about who you are to them. But you having two or three cocktails in you changes how you engage with them. You might not notice it, but they do. And it's that relational piece, that connection, that really being present that, that people are responding to. And that's why they're annoyed because even if you're not fall down drunk, you're not starting fights, you're not crashing the car, like all of these you're big different think are like rock bottom, that distance from the people that you love, that is huge. And that makes a really big difference in that overall feeling of safety and love and warmth in your house. And so when you go back to that idea of like, oh, well, if you have this really healthy marriage, it's going to really help. And it's like, yes. And what we want to do is catch the dysfunctional relationship to alcohol early enough that it hasn't actually really created a lot of huge cracks in the family. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love the blanket analogy. That's so, I feel that like I've, I've mm-hmm. experienced that and I'm one who clams up when I'm stressed and everybody feels it. I feel like I'm the the weather vane in our house. Like whatever mm. I'm doing is what the entire house is doing. I don't know uh-huh. why that is. I wish it was Chris because people would be a lot happier all the time in my house if he was the weather vane. But, I, so, but alcohol for me is like, it just allowed me this space to start to talk. And I would 
And I know I definitely talk more and more freely after a couple of drinks, but sometimes not for the good. Like sometimes that openness just turns into bullshit rambling that's meaningless Mm -hmm. to people Mm -hmm. and people are like, oh, and I, I can see it. You know, I've been aware enough to see that shift happen. And again, it's one of those little shame things that does not feel Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you tell me about one of the most difficult alcohol conversations you have had with a client? Yeah. Yeah. And before, before I do, I just was having a thought where you were talking about that. Because there is this sense of you want to be open with your family and you want to be like, and if you're stressed and clammed up. And so that to me goes back to this idea of what's the function of alcohol. And like, if the function of that first drinks is like, I'm going to let loose. What we try to do here is like, okay, we need a bag of 20 tricks. Mm -hmm. One of them a a drink, really, that's fine. But then can one of them be a run? Can one of them be a a hot shower? Can one of them be, you know, that you smell your lavender candle that you love? You know, I love it. Good. Other ways of getting yourself from point A, which is like clammed up and stressed to point B, which is like loose and open and able to engage and talk with your family. And can you can you have 20 options at your disposal so that given the day and the time, like if, if running is your thing, but it's raining outside, you can't do it. What else do you have? Because a drink is fine. I mean, really there, a lot of like bad things are really fine <laughs> as long as they are used sporadically. Right. And, and you want to have all of these other sort of mechanisms for getting yourself from one state of being into another state of being. Mm-hmm. And if alcohol is the only way, then you know you've got a real problem, right? So um, I love that bag of 20 tricks. And as you were saying that, I'm like, oh crap, there's no way there's 20 tricks. There's the mm-hmm. run thing. I could definitely do that. Mm-hmm. There's maybe writing. That helps me mm-hmm. a lot, actually. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll sit in my car and just grab a piece of paper and just make a list of all the stuff that's weighing me down. Yes. And then, you know, sometimes just visualizing that and just going like, all right, this is not that bad. Like mm-hmm. I could take a breath about this. I don't know if it would work in terms of like walking into the house out of after a terrible day, but I love that. So yeah. And, and that's a very good point too. Like not all alcohol is terrible for right. Most people, I mean, I think there are some people who shouldn't have any alcohol ever, but I think that, you know, you can say that you can say like, I'm going to have my one teeny little thing and that's it. You know, that's awesome. I I really do. Like if people are like, ah, yes, you know, on a Friday night, my one cocktail, I look forward to it. Like beautiful that you could do the same thing with, oh, I love going to the beach and waking up early and seeing the sunrise. You know, it's like there are all of these things that really help us move from one state to another. And and honestly, I used to do the same thing where I would be in my car. I wouldn't write, but I would visualize. I love the idea of Olympic athletes who are winter sports because they can't train all year. They, they have these facilities, they have this stuff, but you can't ski constantly. And so what a lot of them do training wise is they visualize and they go movement through movement through like, so they're just sitting on a couch or laying in a bed or something, right? And they're thinking, okay, here I am at the top of the slope. Really? Here I am angling my hips. Yeah. And here I am tilting forward. Now here's the rush of air. Whoa. Here's where my ankles go. Like they just moment by moment visualize because that actually what we know research wise is almost as good as physical training. 
stop. Yes. Because like it, it really does the muscle fibers react to it. Like your whole emotional state reacts to it. And so I would actually sit in my car and I would give myself five minutes and I would picture, cause you could feel yourself, right? Where you're like, I'm going to come in the house and I'm going to scream at my seven-year-old. I'm going to be gonna, fighting immediately. Yes, I'm just going to be a nightmare. <laughs> and I'd be like, and he was so annoying sometimes. I love my child so much. But like, oh my gosh, right? They are really, re they know how to poke your buttons. And so I would sit in the car and I'd be like, okay, here's what's going to happen. And I'm going to walk in the door and Thomas is going to do this thing that is going to make me scream my head off. And like, when he does that thing, what am I going to do instead? And what is it going to look like? And what is it going to feel like? And how do I get myself? And by actually doing that and rehearsing, I did a much better job. I didn't always wow. get an A, but I did a much wow. better job of actually pulling off my body could be in a very different state and I could have a lot more patience because I had actually given myself the time to mentally rehearse how I wanted to be. And so the same can be true of that feeling. If you're like, what feeling do I get when I have that fear? You know, it's like, can I mentally rehearse? And so I'm not even actually drinking, but I can mentally rehearse what that, that warmth feels like flooding my body, how my muscles sort of loosen, how my neck kind of like, loosens up and isn't all constricted and tight and then what would I be talking about what would I be sharing if I weren't so stressed and constricted how would that be because then you actually are able to to do a close approximation of how calm and cool and chill you feel without actually having to drink Wow. Well, for someone who doesn't drink a lot, you just visualized <laughs> the feeling of a first drink Perfectly. Like every single thing you said, the warmth. I know the, the feeling muscles. of a first drink personally. Like I, oh I, I, I God, love that's... that feeling. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have never heard that. That is fascinating and such good advice. I'm going to try that because yeah, you know, like you feel yourself and you're like, I'm ready for a fight. The first person in my face is just going to get it. And it's going to be about something stupid and I'm going to immediately regret it. But mm -hmm. if I can do that before I even walk in the house, gosh, who knows how much conflict I could prevent. <laughs> could avoid, absolutely. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All right, so back to your most difficult conversation. Yeah, so, uh, so I've had quite a few. One comes to mind, it was years and years and years ago, and it, and it was a, a couple that I was working with and the man was drinking a lot. And it was a situation in which partly it was just over drinking for stress relief. And I think also to kind of separate himself from the chaos and the difficulty of family life, because it's a lot to raise lots of little kids and stuff. But then the other component was, and again, I've heard this time and time and time again. And so if every single one of my clients that I've ever seen was listening, there would be a lot of them that were like, Oh my gosh, I think she's talking about me. Where the neighborhood dynamic was such that the drinking then led to some inappropriate relationships because oh. your inhibitions are down, right? Like there's stuff going on. It's just, it, it really is an invitation in some ways to not think through the consequences of your behavior. And so there were so many facets of it. The alcohol conversation is sort of coming into that needs to be taken care of before we can look at all of these other pieces. Because if that isn't taken care of, we don't have the safety and the like kind of confines to look at, you know, what's going on in your marriage and what's causing you to kind of want this distance. And, and so it was 
really tough and this person got really mad and like they, you know, kind of yelled back at me and they got up and they stormed out. And like, honestly, I've had quite a few people storm out. It's fine. People get really activated. They get really overwhelmed. 99 times out of a hundred, they come back. I actually just had a client that stormed out years and years and years ago who just came back and was like, wow. Hey, like, I really want to talk about how I stormed out and like what was going on for me and what our relationship means to me, even though I haven't spoken to you in years. And it's kind of amazing to kind of get depth and that safety and to know that just because somebody gets really mad at you and storms out doesn't mean that's the end. A a lot Mm -hmm. of times I think people feel like, oh, great, I'm fired. Look at that. Oops. You know, like, (laughs) but I really see it as this opportunity of like, okay, like we're in sometimes these really big moments have to happen. And then I kind of, it's making me think of like the opposite too, where sometimes the hardest conversations, because I do have a very high tolerance for conflict and I just see it as part of working through and getting to people because those big feelings kind of have to come up in order for people to, to get engaged. Then I'm thinking of one where it just, nothing we said, nothing like the kids could come in and talk about how difficult it was. And the partner could talk about how difficult it was. And this person was just like, yeah, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nope. I don't agree. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nope. I don't see it as a problem. And because there was so little engagement, I was like, am I going to have to be the one to actually like <laughs> yell and screaming? That really something has to happen in here. And, and so like, those are really tough conversations too. I think when the person just won't engage. They're just like, nope. And I'm like, oh, do you see how upset your family members are? And do you see how scared they are? And how we're, they're like, yeah, well, I don't think they need to be. You know, wow. it just such a, a, a tough stopping point. And that, that's what I imagine for you sometimes maybe is that difficulty of like, you have these eight minutes or 12 minutes or whatever you have with each patient. And how do you cut through that? Like, how Mm. do you, A, are you worried about the escalation? You know, like if I bring this up, are they going to get really defensive or really mad? But if I bring this up, what if they just don't do anything with it at all? And then where do I go from there? Those are really hard conversations to have. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think for me, I always just say, this is going to be continued. Like, you Mm. know, my, especially with a new patient, when it comes to alcohol or any other, you know, red flag thing that I think is something definitely medically we have to talk about, I just take that first visit to get them to trust me enough to come back. You know, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. for me, if I if I bulldoze my way through the alcohol conversation at that first visit, no matter how important it is, and I alienate them, I've lost them. They yep. just won't come back. You know, I, there's nothing I can do after that point. So, you know, I try to like plant a little seed. And then for me, the most critical thing I do is I walk them to the front desk and I watch them make a follow-up appointment. I don't do that with every patient, but when it's a patient like that, where I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to need two, three, four, five visits to get through. And it's not even just alcohol. It's anything like they're 50 and haven't had a mammogram or they have had you know, no, you know, care for their hypertension ever, you know, like whatever the thing is, I think creating that relationship first, which sucks because sometimes like, I feel like, do I have time? You know, Mm -hmm. 
So does this no. person literally have a month where they will be okay if they don't stop drinking or if they don't treat their blood pressure, if they don't, whatever. It's definitely a tough thing. I would rather the conflict almost yeah. than yeah. that patient that is like an ice block that I've got to chip through for sure. Yeah. It is funny though, because as you talk, it's so much of what I think as well is that the relationship is what's going to make it so that they can hear us. And if we come in, you know, guns a blazing, then they feel attacked. They feel judged. They're never coming back. The walls go straight up. And so to me, if there's not an emergency, if it's not life-threatening, that really clear approach where you have patience that like, just because I'm ready for this person to change, doesn't mean they're ready to change. And can I be patient and can I be in and can I, can I love them and respect them and care about them and stick in this with them and know that it might take two or three or four of these different experiments that I'm, and I've done that before with people where I thought, Oh, I think this is really way more severe than they do, but I am going to, I'm going to gently push and I'm going to ask for these continued experiments. And then I bet we're going to get to a place where I'm going to be referring them to rehab and that's going to be really good and important. But even though I want to refer them to rehab today, that will not go over well. And that if they do get so annoyed or so angry or so hurt by the approach I'm taking, that I'm not the only one here, that there are other therapists that they might go to there. There's their doctor there, you know, there's other people in their lives. And I am one of probably many voices that are planting these seeds that eventually they will kind of come around to. And I can't make it my agenda and my deal. And I want to be the one. It has to be seen in sort of that larger system and that larger time frame. Mm -hmm. Oh, perfect. So can we close on something that I, I just one, want your opinion on, but I would love to hear your take. And it's about us as professionals sharing our personal experience with our patients and clients and the good, bad, or indifferent that it does. Because I've been accused many times, especially in, in the alcohol conversation, of being an oversharer. And for me, the thing that, you know, that does give me that little icky inside is when people say things like, I really trusted you, but if you were drinking, like, how do I know, like all those decisions you made all those years were good. And, you know, to be fair, I never drank during right. the day, never drank at work. I was never impaired when I was making, in fact, if I was on call, I didn't drink at all. So I'm not worried about that piece of it, but like, is there a place for that? Would you say, or is it just taboo zone and you're better, better not? Yeah. I loved because I, I do follow you on Facebook and that's where I first saw you, you know, kind of sharing and posting about your story. And I loved that you were willing to be that vulnerable and that open, because I think the more people talk about it, the more there is this counter to the culture here, which is everyone drinks. It's cool. And that like, if we start going, well, actually, no, you know, I recognize that even having two or three drinks most nights was not working for me. It wasn't working for my family. It's not good. So I really love the sharing of stories, but I do think that especially healthcare professionals are in a tough position. I know for us as therapists, self, it used to be, it's really interesting if you look at like sort of the history of therapists where you look back 50 years ago and it really was that blank slate. 
and that like you really weren't supposed to share anything and that really annoying like after you've seen movies right where someone's like you know so you know so doctor like tell me about you know where you ate dinner last night or something and the the therapist is like tell me why it's important for you to know that you know it's just like (laughs) such a gross weird thing where it's like i'm sorry we're two people in a room we can share where we ate dinner it's fine (laughs) so things have evolved and what we have found is that self-disclosure is actually incredibly helpful really Um, but within boundaries right so Mm. the reason why we're disclosing if we are healthcare professionals and we're still practicing and like some of our clients or patients or whoever are going to be receiving this self-disclosure it really has to be am i doing this because it can be helpful to them so like i will share in session if there are things in my personal life that i have gone through that they are going through and that i'm asking them to do some hard things I won't give a ton of detail. It's not about me. I sort of have this like 30 second rule where like, can I tell them this in 30 seconds? Because I want them to feel like I I know what they're going through. Like I understand it. They're not alone. Other people have experienced this and that I get that what I'm asking them to do is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. But here are some things that I found helpful. And so there really is that self-disclosure sometimes allows people to trust you more and to feel like you really understand the struggle that they're going through. But if any part of the self-disclosure is about like, oh, let me get something off my chest, you know, like you can help me, you know, or like, oh, let me, then it's not good, right? Like then we're really not helping our patients and clients. It's not, it's not useful to them. It's actually a burden to them. And it's a way that they then have to carry Mm. more about us. And so that self-disclosure, I think it's, really, really useful. And I think the way that you are sharing about your journey with alcohol and looking at what's going on for you around it really helps a lot of people. But there will always, especially when you do it publicly, it's one thing to do it one person to one person in a room. Right, right. But like, I, I probably wouldn't share something terribly big, because I don't know what all of my different clients are going through. I don't know what they're going to kind of put on, you know, me around that. And that there is always backlash. There's always going to be people who have a negative reaction to it. And that's where I kind of go, keeping it one-to-one in a room makes it so much easier. Cause when you see their face and like the, the like horror and disgust, you know, that maybe you weren't, you know, as efficient as they thought you were going to be or whatever effective, then you get to have that conversation and you get to repair that and you get to share. I bring this up because it's something that you're struggling with too. And I want you to know that what I'm asking you to do is hard. Like, Versus just out in the public sphere, you are going to have to deal with that backlash. But I think it's up to you, right, to get to determine if I know that that our community really does struggle with this. And I know that there's a thousand people who are going to see this post. And if like 200 of them, this resonates with them and it really helps them. And I, I look through the comments and I saw people going, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. I've been feeling this way myself. Like you did inspire a lot of people to take a look at their drinking behaviors and their habits. So if you get like, I don't know, 10 or 20 people who are kind of pissed off about it or upset about it, it's like, I'm sorry. And that's sad. And I hate that you have to deal with that. And I don't like that they have that feeling about their doctor. I think that Mm. feels scary and hard, but is it worth it? You know, yeah, like, I mean, it's 200 people, like probably, right? I mean, yeah, like you said, it's math, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah. I, I really appreciate the 30 second thing. And why am I sharing this? You know, there's very, very few times where I feel 
connected enough to a patient where I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Let me unload. Like, <laughs> honestly, I can think of like never times that's happened. But there are definitely times when I feel comfortable enough to maybe go past the point where it needs to go. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, you know, if I have a person who's like, oh, you know, I really love bourbon. I'm like, me too. What's your favorite? You know, and then yeah. I can use that to transition to, but you don't need to love bourbon this much. But sometimes it's just kind of like, like, I feel like I need a break. I need to be able to pump the brakes on this self-sharing mm -hmm. in certain situations, almost before the, you know, the look so that they take away the positive. And so the last right. thing I leave them with isn't this sense of like, oh my God, like, you know, that, that was a lot, you know? So those are such helpful tidbits. Is there anything you would like to leave either patients with or healthcare professionals with in terms of tough conversations specifically around alcohol? I think that frame of really using it as a relationship to alcohol because that whole idea of like you are drinking too much you're an alcoholic you have an alcohol problem it all feels so stigmatizing to the person it, it really feels like that you are this versus like what is your relationship to alcohol and what's going on there and look, let's take a look at that because that can be done with anything. What's your relationship to exercise? What's your relationship to chocolate? What's your relationship, you know, to you know, television? Like that, how are we using these things? How are we engaging in these things in a way? Are they bettering our lives? Are they not, right? Like that we can really look at, is there something unhealthy or dysfunctional going on? And then what do you want to do to correct that? Because I think sometimes when we frame it as a you problem and it's, it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I'm really not no, no, I know. them and they have to take accountability and it's all mm -hmm. theirs to do. But how do you talk about that? Well, you talk about it as their relationship to alcohol, right? Not them as a person, because that level of shame that they're going to feel when we're like, you are blah, you know, it's most likely going to make them curl back into themselves even more and dig into those alcohol, drugs, whatever they're using even more because they want to mask, they want to numb, they don't want to face those things. But when we frame it in such a way that it gives them space to actually look at it and gives them a place to really look at, okay, what could I be doing instead? And how can I test this as opposed to just going, well, obviously I'm an alcoholic. Everyone says so. I guess I'll just go ahead and do it. That really having that ability to have that separation of themselves from it, externalizing that problem in such a way that they can look at then how are they engaging with alcohol. I think that to me has felt like the thing that gives people the most room to actually do really, really great work. And that's the other thing that I would leave people with is that I have seen clients do amazing mm. work around this. Nice. People feel like, ugh, they're an addict. They'll always be that way. You know, or once, once like this, always like this. And it's, I have seen people make incredible changes around this and it doesn't have to be life altering and life upending. It can really be these sort of like you did, right? Like these tweaks and these changes and these experiments to see what do I want my life to feel like? What does my body feel like? You know, how do I want to show up in the world? And so to say that there's a lot of hope 
of people being able to change their relationship to alcohol and to engage it in a way that's actually quite healthy and quite fun. And it's really kind of magical to get to be a part of. Oh, I love that. You're so inspiring. I'm so glad that you are, you are in our community, you know, as, as much of a community it is of, you know, celebrating a lot. (laughs) I think I'm so glad that you're here in Southeastern Pennsylvania, Philadelphia suburbs with me. Uh, me too. For everyone listening, I want to leave with a couple of things. One is no one is above finding themselves on that slippery slope of drinking too much. Even those of us that quote unquote know better. Number two, there is so much support out there. So if you're someone who is just questioning your relationship with alcohol, I would encourage you to reach out to your doctor, your therapist, your family, whoever it is that you trust and have the conversation, you will not be sorry. For everyone who is in a good place with alcohol and none of this is relevant to, thank you for listening. If you've had a good or bad conversation with a healthcare professional, I would love to hear from you. Please email me, christine at christinemeyermd.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare. 